This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. It's about 1.30, 1.45 today. We found out that former mayor Bob Morrow, longest serving mayor in the city of Hamilton, had passed away. He was 71 years old. And I thought it would be an appropriate time to talk to a few people who understand that job. There's only four now surviving, so it is it is not a big club. But the man who is holding the position now, uh, you know him. His name is Fred Eisenberger, mayor of the city of Hamilton. He joins me. Thanks for doing this, Mr. Mayor. Yeah, thank you, Scott, for having me on. Um, I said in the intro, just at the top of the show, it's been, we're talking about Bob Morrow, of course, it's been 18 years now since he has been in the mayor's chair. And for that, you know, the city, the city of Hamilton has changed an awful lot in that time with people moving here, with people growing up. And there are a lot of people who probably don't know a whole lot about Bob Morrow. From your perspective, what is his legacy in this city? Well, I, let me let me say that uh, you know during his 17 years, he certainly. Uh, I mean, the city kind of grew up with many people in the city grew up with uh, Bob Morrow as mayor. So uh, I have I have no doubt that there are probably many that uh, that remember him very fondly. Absolutely, uh, but I'm sure there are some that uh, you know that predate uh, his mayorship, and uh, I think they should know that uh, you know during his time as mayor, he, these were challenging times in the uh, in the 80s. Uh, you know, the uh, interest rates were high. Uh, companies were closing down or right-sizing themselves. Uh, employment was being lost, and he was, uh, you know, working arduously to, uh, con- to to diversify the economy and grow our waterfront and really start uh, working on areas that would uh, move us away from being singularly and solely reliant on the steel industry. And so, I think today he was uh, very proud of uh, where we've come to. Uh, you know, with a city that's now. Uh, by all accounts, uh, uh, consider the most diversified economy in the country. Uh, our unemployment is low. Uh, we see new business, new business opportunities coming in on a regular basis. We see new development happening across the city, uh, and no one was more proud of that than uh, than Bob Morrow. And you know, we come to the office uh, often. He didn't live too far from uh, City Hall, and uh, I would see him on a regular basis, and we would talk about uh, you know where the city's going and uh, what we can continue to work on and how we uh, can continue to move the community forward. And, you know, to, to, his, uh, to his dying day, he was passionate about uh, Hamilton and Hamiltonians and where, uh, where the community was going and how, uh, how well it is now progressing. You mentioned to his dying day, and, and of course he passed away this afternoon. Um, earlier, or in December, I guess it was, City Council under you named the forecourt of City Hall after him. Did you know at that time, was the timing of that important? Did you know that he was not doing well? Well, I knew he wasn't uh, wasn't well, but he, uh, you know, it wasn't uh, as if he was at death's door. So he was having some uh, some significant challenges, and uh, he was dealing with them. And by his own indication, he said, uh, you know, these are uh, these are you know challenges that have caught up with him over the years, and uh, he he was going to deal with them, uh, you know, as they came. He was, uh, you know, on occasionally on oxygen, had some breathing difficulties, and uh, and some dialysis, I believe. And so, uh, you know, challenges that uh, he thought, uh, you know, he was uh, getting on top of. And, uh, unfortunately, uh, you know, every time you saw him, uh, he seemed to be uh, a little bit more gaunt and a little bit more challenged in terms of his mobility. And, uh, you know, at, uh, at some point in the last uh, few weeks, for sure, it was pretty clear that he was having uh, some, some real, real challenges. And, uh, you know, it, uh, it didn't look good. But no, uh, now when we decided to name the uh, the forecourt, it was really in honor of his legacy, not uh, not uh, to hurry up and 
you know, get it done before he uh, before he died. I fully expected him to be there. We were planning on doing something in March or early April, and uh, unfortunately, he won't be there to uh, appreciate that. But uh, we'll work with his family to ensure that uh, that he gets the uh, the recognition that I think he's he deserves. You mentioned about the 17 years, 17 plus years that he was mayor. If you're going to do that, you have to be pretty good at your job. You have to be pretty effective as a politician. What I think you ran against him once, if I'm correct, but what made him What made him such an effective politician? Well, you know, he was just a people person. Uh, he, uh, he, he liked interacting with people, all kinds of people. He, he was comfortable, uh, you know, both, both in the boardroom and at the steel plant. Uh, he was very engaged with the immigrant community, and uh, he had a you know great great sense of history. And with uh, with all of the immigrant communities that came, the Italians, the Portuguese, the uh, uh, the Polish, uh, the Vietnamese, uh, when you know during the Vietnamese uh, boat days, uh, he was very very passionate about celebrating diversity in our community. And he tended to know people by their first name, and uh, you know went to every organization on a regular basis to. Uh, let them know that this city cared about them and the cultural capacity that they had. He wanted them to continue to celebrate. And, uh, and we continue on with that legacy. Uh, it's, it's something that I continue to do and something I, I learned from him, in fact. And, um, you know, his, his sense of history uh, in, the, in the city of Hamilton is, uh, is probably one of the best uh, of anyone that I know. And so uh, given all of that, he could really endear himself to people with all of those uh, attributes and uh, his sense of history and sense of immigration and history about all the communities that have come to uh, Hamilton to make our city better. And so whenever you met him, you uh, you know you were going to have an interesting conversation, and I think that was one of his endearing qualities. I only have 10 seconds, but you know the challenges of this job. Could you ever imagine doing it for 17 or 18 years? Uh, it's certainly not part of my playbook, but, uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, a lot of people have, uh, you know, you think back to uh, Hazel McCallion. And yeah, that's others. true. Yeah. Uh, you know, Bob, Bob did forgive me for running against him in 2000. Uh, <laughs> you know, initially he blamed me for, you know, splitting off votes and, uh, and, you know, giving the victory to Bob Wade at the time. Uh, but you know what? He's, he was a, he was a generous man and, uh, um, you know, he didn't hold grudges. And uh, we have been fast friends, uh, you know, from the day we met to, uh, to you know, un- unfortunately until the day he died. And uh, I am gonna, I'm going to miss him desperately. He was, uh, he was just a quality individual. Mayor Fred Eisenberg, I really appreciate the time today. Thanks for the words. Thank you, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. Talked with Mayor Fred Eisenberger, current Mayor Fred Eisenberger. Well, a man who knows the job as well as that, former Mayor Larry Deany joins me now. Mr. Mayor, thanks for doing this today. Well, my pleasure, Scott. We, um, I was, t- Fred was just saying, Mayor Eisenberger was saying a moment ago that Bob Morrow would occasionally drop in to City Hall and have a conversation. What is there a fraternity of former mayors? Because there aren't very many of you. No, there aren't. Um, well, I don't know if there's a fraternity, but. You know, when you've shared an experience, um, it, it sort of uh, coalesces the, the group uh, because of that shared experience. Uh, but uh, there's always an, an interest in being interested, but not in interfering because current uh, uh, people who are in charge need to, to run their own show. But if asked, we always uh, answer the call, and Bob certainly did that when I was in the chair. Did you take advantage of that when you were there? Absolutely. Uh, he was interested in um, 
the uh, the whole twinning, the whole mundialization, where Hamilton is twinned with a number of uh, communities, and uh, he actually broke ground on a lot of that during his tenure, uh, certainly with some of uh, the villages in Italy uh, that have uh, lent uh, a lot of uh, uh, citizens to the city. Uh, speaking of Racalmuto in uh, in Sicily, where Mayor Fred also visited, but also beyond that, uh, Florida, for example, uh, was was very big uh, on uh, on in his interest list. And um, when when I was mayor, I asked him to sort of take a lead in maintaining those connections, and he did so very willingly. Did he remain? Uh, after his after he was out of office as a mayor. Now, I know, obviously, in 2014, briefly, he came back to fill in when Bernie Morelli passed away, but did he remain a power broker in this city, or did he kind of go and just do his own Joe Public kind of thing? Because we didn't hear a lot. No, well, that's because, uh, you remember, he became a, a, citizen, uh, a citizenship court judge, and um, <clears throat> as a result of that, I mean, that's a, an apolitical uh, posting, uh, ceremonial <clears throat> to a great extent, but also extremely important in terms of welcoming and swearing in new citizens to this country. So he did that, actually, uh, as he liked to point out to me, uh, uh, beyond uh, the term of the government that appointed him. He was reappointed by the other government. So he was appointed by the liberals, uh, and he gave uh, great credit to some of the sitting members of the day, um, Stan Keyes specifically mentioned to me, uh, but then was reappointed under the Conservatives and uh, credits David Sweet with uh, shepherding that through. Uh, and it's not usually done. You know, uh, when new governments uh, come in, they like to um, sweep clear uh, the old appointees and bring in their own people. But Bob transcended that politics and and served as that but as a consequence you wouldn't hear from him on municipal issues very much but he was always interested i would see him at uh, various events and of course uh, over the last year and a half uh, we had lunch regularly almost monthly uh, and he was keenly interested in what was going on and very supportive of some of the initiatives that uh, the current mayor um, is undertaking as well did you believe that he understood his legacy in the city of Hamilton? I mean, was he keenly aware of what he did for this city? You know, he's a very humble man. I mean, for me, and I've known Bob uh, for generations. I remember that uh, the first time I met him, um, I, uh, I was not involved in politics, uh, and he would reach out to the ethnic communities and would often come to, um, to events at St. Anthony's Church, for example, if there was a, a special occasion. And I remember one Sunday, uh, we, uh, we uh, invited him for, for lunch, for a Sunday lunch at uh, my parents' house. And uh, that was the first time I saw him. And he struck me as a, and he came, he accepted the invitation, and he struck me as a, as a gentleman uh, above all else, as someone who reached out uh, to people, but, but a quintessential gentleman. And, you know, uh, I've got to say that over the last uh, year and a half that we've been um, seeing each other, talking, having, uh, uh, as I said, regular lunches, uh, talking about city issues, what struck me then that he had not changed. He was the quintessential positive gentleman, wouldn't say an unkind word about things. I mean, would express opinions, sometimes contrary 
to whatever political, um, um, you know, initiative uh, he might have disagreed with at other levels of government. But he wouldn't say an unkind word. In fact, he went out of his way to say kind things about people. So he lived a life of uh, humility, I think. And so consequently, we never talked about his legacies in those terms. But we did talk about some of the programs that he instituted. We did talk about some of the hardships and some of the uh, challenges that he had to face at a time when uh, so-called Rust Belt cities saw their traditional industries, heavy industries, disappear, and the tax base was impacted. The ground was shifting on all of that. And so consequently, um, you know, he, he understood what was happening and put in place some some policies that following mayors, myself included, augmented. But those policies that he initiated are responsible, I believe, for some of the turnaround and the renaissance we're seeing today it is uh, it is a great legacy for sure which is why so many people have so many fond things to say about him uh yourself included former mayor larry Deany, really appreciate the time today thanks for taking a few minutes my pleasure thank you for recognizing bob i think the community uh, will miss him uh, absolutely you're correct former mayor larry Deany, thanks for the time you're listening to the scott radley show weeknights from six to eight only on 900 chml one of the more interesting stories politically in this city, I would think, involves my next guest, the man who finally, after 17, 18 years, was finally able to beat Bob Morrow in an election, which was saying something. Bob Wade, former Mayor Bob Wade, joins me now. Mr. Mayor, thanks for doing this tonight. Thanks, Scott. Nice to be with you, but sorry because it, uh, we lost Bob. Well, and, uh, it, it is very you. sad. It is very sad. You, now, yeah. I want to ask you that, though, because you were the giant killer, as it were. The, you were the man who, after six terms was finally able to beat Bob Morrow, which I think a lot of people never thought would happen in this city. Was it a surprise even to you when you won that election a little bit? We started off not knowing how, how we were going to make out, Scott, to be quite truthful. But um, I, ha- I had gone directly uh, in opposition to Bob other than the, that final election because he was always being elected in the city and I was always being elected in Ancaster. And uh, because we were uh, elected at, at, in those two municipalities, we were automatically members of the regional council at that time. So we had 22 years together on, on regional council. But back to your specific question, uh, a couple of days before the election, uh, I had a feeling from the calls that had been coming into the office and the positive uh, responses that the, the canvassers were getting that we had a, a great chance and I remember election day coming home for a sandwich uh, with my wife Ida, and I said to her, "I have a really good feeling about uh, about what's going to happen later today." I said, "I think we're going to win it," and and uh, and we did, as it turned out. And uh, it's too bad Bob was lost because of that, but that's politics. What was your relationship like, though? Because that's the interesting part. It would be very easy for him to have been, because he had been in there for a long time, to be incredibly yes, sour. Yes, he had. What what was your relationship like after that? He was he was always a gentleman. N- never did we have a, 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 a bad word or anything like that between us. Any any time we met, whether it was in the council chambers or outside of the uh, council, outside of our municipalities, it was always very pleasant. Uh, we'd greet each other, and there might be something that we needed to chat about, but nothing that uh, caused any tension between the two of us at all. 
he was he was he was a gentleman's gentleman. There's no doubt no doubt about that, Scott. I, I do wonder. Uh, you of course came into office as part of the amalgamation when that happened. I wonder if amalgamation had never happened. I mean, he may have been mayor for another two or three or four terms, for all we know. Oh, very definitely, very definitely. I was I was quite happy as mayor of Ancaster for the 16 years I spent in that position. And uh, had uh, no intention of, of going any further than that. Although I had been approached by a couple of the uh, of the uh, other party, the parties uh, provincially and, and federally, and decided I didn't want any part of that. I was happy at the municipal level. Both Mayor Eisenberger and Mayor Deany, who were on earlier, talked about how he. He he did talk with people. He I mean, with them he did. If yeah. they if they asked him, he would offer his advice. If they asked him questions, but he wasn't someone who was flexing the muscles of someone who had eighteen years of municipal time behind him. And I'm wondering if that's difficult when you have been in that seat for a long time. And now I know he stayed as a citizenship judge, but he wasn't he politically involved. Is it hard to step away from that and not to try and flex your muscles in the public? Yeah, you know. I, I... It didn't happen to me. I, I, I had uh, 16, 16 years, as I mentioned, uh, nine, nine elections, but six of those were acclamations. So that was the easy way to go. And, of course, the toughest uh, election I had, or the toughest, toughest campaign I had, was the run against Bob uh, and, and the other 10 or 11 who were involved in, in, for the position of mayor of the expanded municipality. Uh, so, no, I, don't find, I didn't find that at all. Be up front with people, Scott. Uh, if they have uh, serious, sincere questions, get them an answer. They might not like the answer, but give them a, give them as truthful an answer as you can. And uh, that always worked for me, and I think it worked very well for Bob Morrow as well. Were you at all surprised when in 2014, now it was, a, it was temporary, it was to fill in when Councillor Bernie Morelli passed away, that Bob returned to the council table. Were you at all surprised that he would do that? Or did you think, no, that actually kind of fits in with what I think Bob Morrow, where his interests are? And that's exactly what I thought. Bob, Bob, if there was a job to do and he was in a position to be able to do it, he'd be, he'd be at the front of the line. And he was when, uh, when, uh, when Bernie passed away. Um, Bob came forward and obviously let the right people know, and uh, he he served out uh, the, the balance of of the term, and he did a good job for them. Who who better than a mayor who uh, not uh, wasn't just familiar with one uh, ter- one uh, ward, but uh, the entire city in his case? Uh, who better than that to uh, to fill in for Bernie? But it would take a certain level of, and you've used the word, I think, but it would take a certain level of humility. When you've been the one wearing the chain and sitting in the big chair, even if it's only temporary, to come back and, I'll use the word only, but in this circumstance, you know what I mean, only be the counselor for a ward, that would take a certain lack of ego, I would think. Well, perhaps so. That that depends on the individual. Um, I don't think Bob had a problem with that, and I wouldn't have had a problem with that if, if, you know, that had been my lot. I, I could easily have made that transition. Uh, sure, wearing the chain of office does does make you feel pretty pretty good. It doesn't give you uh, a leg up, though, on anybody else. There are others on council who know as much as the mayor on many occasions, or like to think they know as much as the mayor. Um, <laughs> Bob Bob weathered through that, Scott. He, he was a great. He, as I say, he was he was always a gentleman. He had a tremendous love of music as well. Of course, and that that drove him. Uh, uh, he, he played in a number of churches over the years and uh, was always willing to sit down at the piano and uh, uh, play some music for us. 
just before we let you go, yeah. you talked about how you spent 22 years, did you say, with him on regional council yes, as well? I was, I was elected in 19, uh, 1978 as, as a deputy mayor in Ancaster, and that was automatically the position of regional councillor. So I was with him from 1978 until uh, 2000 uh, with, with the big election. So I had, I had 22 years. And how much did he change over that time? Um, I didn't see, he was always the same um, very polite, gentlemanly person that he, uh, that I got to know when I first went on council, but there were times when I felt he was carrying a very heavy load, and you could almost see the weight of that load on his shoulders, um, just just by the way he was carrying himself, and I, I knew that uh, having a, a large municipality like Hamilton and the problems that you face from time to time, uh, a tremendous, a tremendous load to carry. There was no doubt about it, but he did it, and he did it well to his, to his credit, Scott. Mayor Bob Wade, former Mayor Bob Wade, always great to hear from you. Thanks for taking Thank the you. time today. Thank you very much, Scott. And I want to pass our best along to his, Bob's family as well. It's a, it's a shock for them when something like this happens, and I know he's got the two boys, so hope, hopefully uh, things will go well for them. Absolutely. Appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. You know what DNA is, right? I mean, everybody knows what DNA is. Okay, now explain it. (laughs) See, this is where this gets a little more challenging. We know what DNA is. We maybe even can say the whole big word that comes with it. But as far as... Knowing what it is beyond being a crime-fighting tool or something that, I don't know, Maury Povich, does he still have a show that he uses to nail deadbeat dads on his schlocky TV show? I don't even know if Maury Povich is still on the air. Anyway, if we had to go beyond that to explain DNA, many of us would have a real problem. It's a little bit complicated, as you may have figured out. Uh, it is It is a pretty mysterious thing, too. However, McMaster University is now introducing an online course called DNA Decoded to try and help the average person figure out what the heck it is that we're talking about when we talk about DNA. One of the people who's behind this program is Dr. Caitlin Malarkey, who joins me now. Dr. Malarkey, thanks for doing this today. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm pleased to be here with you. Well, I'm hoping, I'm trusting that you are going to do a vastly better job explaining DNA than I would if I was going to take a crack at this. Uh, well, you know, I think, <laughs> I think your introduction was um, the perfect uh, segue into uh, the course because, you know, we're regularly confronted with this, this word DNA. You know, it doesn't take much to turn on your TV. We see commercials for ancestry kits. Yes. We watch crime fighting shows. Yes. Um, maybe some of us have even sent off some of our own genetic material for, for health testing. Um, but, but what is really DNA and um, what can it tell us about us and what can it tell us about the world? So that's, that's what we've addressed um, with the course that we're offering um, online called DNA Decoded. Well, let's, let's start with, I think, maybe the basic question, although uh, maybe this is even too basic. Anyway, it is described by by most people, when you read about it, it is described as the blueprint of life. Explain why that's an apt description. Right. So DNA um, encodes for all the information that makes you, you. Uh, it, it tells uh, all the information for everything in our body is encoded in our genetic material. 
So, and the differences in our genetic material is what makes us unique. So it makes me different from you. It makes um, a dog different than a human. Um, so uh, the, the blueprint of life really just refers to the fact that everything um, in us is encoded by DNA. And what is truly stunning when you think about that is that there are, what, are 7 billion of us alive now on the earth and how many more before? And every single one of us it's been different for. Uh, yes, that's absolutely right. Now, what's interesting is that actually we 99% of our genome is shared between all of us. There's only a very small percent of our genes that are different, um, which makes uh, this topic even, even more interesting when you really delve into it a little bit deeper. So there's only a very small amount of differences in our whole genome um, between all humans. Okay, and so when we talk about our genome, when we talk about our DNA, is there a numeric thing? Like how how big? I, I know in you know in real life it's tiny, tiny, tiny. But as far as amount of information that's in there, how huge is it? It's okay. So yeah, we're getting into um, some of the uh, more advanced topics. Say <laughs> we're but, jumping. Um, we're jumping to level talk, two right now. Yeah, so when we talk about um, so our DNA is made up of what we call base pairs. And those base pairs um, are, uh, encode the information for our genes. So our whole genome is huge. It's about 3 billion base pairs, but it only encodes for about 20,000 genes. So um, there is a, a large amount of what we call um, junk DNA, so regions in our genome that don't necessarily encode for protein, but have a lot of other important regulatory functions. So, I mean, in fact, and we talk about this in the course, um, you know, it's only been in the last few decades that we've even been able to um, sequence the human genome to even have that information to know how many genes are encoded in our DNA. And even now, though, with that, how much do we, re- do, I mean, are we confident that we really know everything about DNA? Oh, we, you know, I'll be the first person to say that we do not know everything about our, our uh, genome, and um, we are continuing to learn more about it every day. We have a huge, uh, the technology has advanced such that we have an enormous capacity to accumulate data, but we're still sorting through that. So, um we're still figuring out the functions of genes, how things are regulated, the interplay between genes. Um, you know, there is still a lot to learn. Okay, so doctor, we're, we're going to continue on with this because you were mentioning that every part of me, every part of you, every part of everyone is in their DNA. Does that literally mean every part? So my level of health, my level of intelligence, whether I'm subject or susceptible to a disease, all that kind of stuff is there? Yeah, I mean, for the most part. So some of those things that you mentioned can be modified by our environment, right? So, you know, when we talk about the risk of developing certain diseases like cancer, some of that is um, encoded in our genome and some of that is because of things of uh, related to our environment and our lifestyle. But when we talk about things like eye color, hair color, height, um, these sorts of things, uh, all of the tissues in our body, all of the enzymes and proteins and fats that, that allow us to function every day. That is all encoded in our genome. Is there anything that we can do to tweak that at this point? Has science, and we can. Absolutely. I mean, and and, uh, I'm glad you brought that up because this is something 
um, we address in the course. And, and whether, you know, we, we realize it or not, it, it is um, a term that we commonly is in the common vernacular. You're confronted with it every day when you go to the supermarket, which is genetically modified organisms. So we definitely have tools and techniques that we can use to manipulate DNA. Um, you know, the kind of colloquial term is, is cloning. Um, and we are continuing to discover new technologies that allow us to manipulate DNA. So some people may be familiar with CRISPR-Cas9, which is a new tool um, that has emerged in the last few years, very powerful tool to manipulate DNA. But you can't do that to an adult person who's already established, can you? Um, well... <laughs> or could you? You, you know, it, the technology's not quite there in terms of um, studies that have been done on adults using CRISPR-Cas9, but there are ways to manipulate the genome of an adult. Wow. So let's say, I mean, taking a, the, the stupidest example of someone who wants to go crazy with this, but let's just say I didn't like my eye color. Could I actually, okay. is there a way, if you could identify which piece of my DNA was for that, could you, even as an adult, tweak that somehow theoretically and change it? Um, in theory, yes. In practice, that's not something people are doing. No, I, <laughs> <laughs> no, but theoretically, those are the kind of things you could potentially do. Yeah, potentially, absolutely. And, you know, a lot of, we usually frame these conversations um, more in the term of genetic diseases. So how can we replace a gene that's missing or put in a good copy of a gene that's, that's mutated? Um, obviously, you know, you can think of more cosmetic applications to that, um, but most of the research is, is focused from a health perspective. I would hope so. I, look, yeah. I mean, I was, I was using just an example, but yeah, I would hope that if we actually have the technology to do these kind of things, we're not screwing it up by wasting it on things like eye color. Let's use it for something that's actually going to be helpful. Right. Absolutely. Um, how do we, okay. So, but there are parts, and this is the real mystery of DNA. Cause again, you acknowledge that most of us hear about it for, as you say, ancestry tests or crime or something like that. Mm -hmm. In the DNA, how much of the DNA, if I wanted to find out to prove that my children were my children, how much of my DNA is actually overlapping that you would extract or you could look to? Is it a huge part of it or is it a tiny little piece that connects a father to his kids or a mother to her kids or whatever else? So in, um, uh, in general, we inherit 50% of our genetic information from each parent. Um, but when, you, when you're talking about paternity tests or um, what is often referred to as DNA fingerprinting, so that's what, um, if that's the technology or the technique that would be used to solve crimes and find out if um, the blood from the scene of the crime matched the perpetrator or the person that's in custody, um, we actually only look at very specific regions of mm. the genome. Um, uh, these are called tandem variable repeat regions, and um, these allow us to distinguish between individuals. I do want to ask one question just about the crime thing, because that's what most people probably think yeah. of it with. And that, so we know that science always changes. People are always finding new things. Is there any chance that 20 years from now, because DNA has been such a, a deal maker or a deal breaker with crimes. If your DNA is not there, you're innocent. If your DNA is found at a crime scene, you probably did it. Is there a chance 20 years from now, we're going to find out something was different and there's going to be a lot of people who were locked up incorrectly? Um, I think the technology is only going to get better, but I, 
in general, um, I don't think that the applications of it now are being um, used incorrectly or nefariously in any way. Um, the our ability um, to improve those technologies is, is um, going to increase as, as time goes on. Um, but uh, at the moment, um, I don't. I would be very surprised if that were the case. Um, obviously, you know, there's there's a lot of issues that go into um, using DNA at a crime scene because there are all sorts of protocols and how it was collected and the, and the chain of custody and those sorts of things, um, which are probably more likely to lead to a mistake uh, than the actual technique itself. I would love to talk about this for two or three hours because uh, then by then I might actually have a better grasp on it. <laughs> this is a tough one, but you're doing this course for this very reason because most people probably are like me and you know of it. You just don't really know about it. Uh, where can people sign up or at least explore if they were interested in doing this? Yeah, absolutely. So um, the course is available online on uh, the Coursera platform. So you can go to Coursera.org and enroll and it's a hundred percent free um, it doesn't cost anything, and there's something in this course for everyone. And it's entirely self-paced, so you can um, progress through the course as fast or as slowly as, as you want. It is, uh, it is fascinating stuff. I really appreciate it. And people who are interested as well, there's a story at thespec.com today with a link so they can find it there. Dr. Caitlin Malarkey, really thanks uh, for the time today. appreciate it. Great. Thanks for having me. I don't know if that was helpful. I hope it was. It's such a complicated issue, and maybe this course would help you if you're interested. Thespec.com. Go look for the piece. You can find the link. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. Let me bring in Don Robertson, owner, operator, Zamboni driver, maybe, (laughs) on some days of the Dundas Real McCoys, who um, had a bit of a night on Friday, but... (laughs) There's always next week. Down seven nothing after the first going. Hmm, that didn't start exactly how we wanted it to, but uh, outscored them seven two in the next two periods. And if your math's any good, you could beat nine seven. So if you only had a fourth period, if we only had a fourth period, would have blown them out. There is a lot to talk about. I want to start with this though, and it's a recurring theme. I'm not going to lie; it's something we have talked about before, but it seems to raise its head over and over and over again. And I'm going to bring it up again because this drives me bananas. Watching the Super Bowl yesterday, two instant replays on plays that to me looked totally fine, totally fine. One was a catch at the back of the end zone. Guy gets two feet down and scores it. The other one, he runs in, dives in. Breaks the plane, ball hits the ground, then it bounces out. But anyway, you go to the replay. The replay takes forever. It creates all kinds of confusion. Nobody seems to know what the heck is going on, whether the replay is helping or hurting. Don, we see this now with the NHL, with goalie interference constantly. Is it a goalie interference? Is it not goalie interference? Depends on what night it is. Exactly. I, I, I I am coming more and I'm feeling more and more strongly that Instant replay, video review, while it may work occasionally on extreme black and white issues, that's not what it's being used for anymore. It's bran- In every single sport where you introduce instant replay, it branches and branches and branches and becomes more and more subjective, and eventually you end up with chaos. Yesterday, the Super Bowl, to me, 
showed even the commentators, even Chris Collingsworth doesn't know what's going to go on. He's being paid millions of dollars to understand the NFL. I, I, I am so strongly of the belief now that sports would be so much better if we just paid the refs, let them do their job and say, we'll go with what the refs call on the field or on the ice. Did either call get overturned? No. And the problem with that is all the, those two calls earlier in the season for basically identical things were overturned. So you don't even know what the rule is anymore. And that's the same with you're talking about goalie interference, depending on what night it is. There's nights when it looks like clear goalie interference, and they say, no, that's fine. And there's others when they tap him, and they say, no, that's goalie interference. Collingsworth sounded like a, uh, a Patriots fan. He kind of did. To me. He kind of uh, did. I think they were all wishing, for some reason, that New England would win it. Um, the one where he broke the plane at the... Uh, goal line to me he caught the ball on the five yard line he took two steps so to me he was running it and I agree with you that that is that was a an easy decision that, for me except, and the official on the field but Don three weeks ago in Pittsburgh a very similar looking play was overturned which is the point is not that yeah I agree with you that looked to me yesterday like it was a clear-cut no-brainer the Eagles may have benefited from the fact that almost any media outlet you listen to and joke on Facebook had the referees and the officials favoring New England to an extent that it was comical. And you got to think, in the back of the minds of the guys that would have to overturn this, what's it going to look like? I mean, they're human. They they have Facebook. They They hear the radio reports. They read in the newspaper that Brady has got, and Belichick have got them, the officials in their back pockets. But is there any reason then, when, when you watched, did you watch the game yesterday? I did, as okay. a matter of fact. First and one I watched uh, from start to finish in a long time. It was a good one to pick. It was exciting. But on both of those touchdowns, when you watched the play, did either one, did you look at them and go, oh, that's probably not a touchdown? No, neither. Both of them looked to me clear yeah, cut, as fine. simple as possible. And we had to turn this thing into something now where anyone who's a fan of New England feels jobbed today. Because earlier in the season, those exact calls were overturned, yeah. but now we, because we've taken... But they're not objective, so they don't count. Who, New England fans. Well, no, but if, imagine if it had been overturned. Then the, Pitts, uh, the Philadelphia fans would have felt well, they were being jobbed. Well, I wasn't a fan of either one, so if they turned over either one of them... The replay problem is that we're dealing with stuff that is not a clear-cut objective ruling. Objective is, did the ball stay fair or foul? Yep. Very simple. I can see the ball. Did it stay fair or did it stay foul? There's not a lot of, did it stay foul for 12 feet afterwards, at least keeping a certain speed? I mean, that's, that's kind of what we're talking about with this football Or did stuff. it hit the pole? That makes it real easy. Okay, and that makes it super easy. Those things, if it is a purely... The NHL, for example, the offside rule, which has caused them such a nightmare, because now if you're a half a millimeter offside or if your skate blade is a millimeter off the ice, that was started because a game with the Colorado Avalanche, Matt Duchesne was about 15 feet offside, and the, somehow the official missed him. He was so offside, they didn't even see him, and it led to a goal. To me, that's what the replay should do. You look at the replay once, and if it's an egregious, offensive, obvious offside or whatever, you say, oh, yeah, sorry, we didn't see that. It should not be 
parsing the Zapruder film to see where the second shooter was on the grassy knoll, which is what it's become. I think you go with the, I like the idea of getting it right, but I also like if it's not conclusive, then you have to go with the on-ice officials call. Uh, I understand there's a move afoot to change the offside rule in hockey that your foot is not going to have to be on the ice. Just on the plane. It's just going to have to. So if it's off the ice by half an inch, it's still onside. But you know what's going to happen with that now? It's going to be the fact that the next one is going to be, well, was it actually at the blue line or was it? Yeah. We can't really tell. It's so close. Don, how many times have we seen a football player's foot maybe touching the line, but maybe not touching? That's that's what it's going to be. I'll tell you what was confusing. I, I used to do the lines in the OHL when they wore Cooperalls. Yeah. And they all had a white stripe down. And, you know, when you're watching and you're focused, you got now you got to figure out, is it Peterborough's purple uh, Cooperall or is it the Hamilton Steelhawks black Cooperall? It was, uh, that was a challenge. You, you were an official, as you just described. What I don't understand about any of this is we pay, leagues pay good money, big money in some cases, for their officials. Let the officials officiate 99 times. See, this is what gets lost. 99 times out of 100, maybe more than that, they get the call right. It's a rare thing that they get it wrong. And, you know, for us, for people to say, well, we have to get it perfect. But it's not getting perfect. There's night after night with the NHL, with the goalie interference, are people leaving that game saying, yeah, that was a perfect call. They, they got that one. No one knows what it is now. No. They don't know what's right and what's wrong. Well, Brad Hall had his skate in the crease when the Dallas Stars won the Stanley Cup over Buffalo. Absolutely. Think of think of two years ago in the Blue Jays playoffs. There was, I can't remember which team they were playing, probably Texas. Anyway, someone slid into second base and Troy Tulowitzki put the tag on the guy. The guy was in safe, but he put the tag on and held the tag on his leg. And the guy popped up, remember he popped up off yep. the bag by about the width of a piece of paper. And by the time they zoom the camera into about a 4,000% magnification, you could maybe see there was a time. That's not what instant replay is supposed to be about. And people here go, well, no, that was a good call. Imagine it was against the Blue Jays instead of for the Blue Jays. It's like, that's not what the instant replay is supposed to be for. Well, it's, I mean, the increase... um in trying to increase the integrity of the game the, in Major League Baseball, for example, they got rid of the neighborhood play at second base. You know, the shortstop which, fires which it over to the second baseman. If he was within two feet of the bag, he was out. And it worked fine for 120 yep. years. But So they say, well, let's try and get these things right. And it's escalated from there. Now, the funny thing about officials, and it's, it's very, very true with players as well, uh, like everybody in the Dundas Real McCoys would play in the National Hockey League for $100,000 a year. Uh, the referees would all work for seventy-five grand a year or hundred grand a year. So make it two hundred grand a year. So everybody doing their job. The NFL guys, the guys that are doing college right now would love to be NFL officials. They would do it for a third of the price. So the reason I bring that up, it's not so much about money, it's about the eagerness to do the job. So the same, basically the same officials would be officiating in the NFL. You'd still have the very best for less money. My point is you'd have the very best at any price. Let them do their job. I do like the idea if it's going to determine the outcome of the game to get it right. 
and there's there's no and, and you can but say. Let me ask you one other thing. Then let me interrupt you for one second because I think a lot of people agree with that point. If it's a if it's a play that's going to determine the outcome of the game, get it right. However, how far do you go to that effect? Well, that's the problem. How far will you go? Because, and what I mean by that, and I've written a piece for tomorrow in the paper about this, is in this game, you looked at the guy who dove into the end zone. Did the ball get jarred loose? Was he a ball carrier? Whatever else. You looked at that guy with the ball. Should we not, if we're going to be perfect, if we're going to make sure the game is called perfectly, should we not, after every play, review every guy on the line of scrimmage to make sure a hold wasn't missed? Because, you know, a hold, even though it may not directly be with the ball, that could have changed where the running back decided he was going to go and he made a different move because he didn't see an opening. You know, you say, well, it's just, you know, it's one thing. Every single thing on a field or on the ice or whatever. What about in hockey? What if there's a missed trip? or a missed cross-check, and four minutes later, without a whistle, a goal is scored. Should you be able to say, no, that, look, this was the that goal was the fruit of the poison tree. If that trip hadn't happened, none of that play would have developed eventually the way it did. So how, how far afield are you willing to go well, to that's, get perfect? That's where they give the referees the discretion. We've talk, I mean, we talked about that at some point. I can't believe that every snap of the line of scrimmage Something isn't happening on the line that's illegal. You could call a penalty on every play. And the officials are, I, I haven't read the NFL, I've read the hockey rule book, obviously. And, and you know, it's funny, the definition of high sticking in hockey is anybody that carries their stick above the normal height of the shoulders. Well, everybody that jumps by a guy has his stick above the shoulders. Every time there's a goal scored, half the guys on the ice put their sticks up in the air. So all that discretion is there, and nobody's rewriting the rule book. So you're right. but And I think what they did, when they first brought stuff in, they brought, like, is the foot in the crease? So they, they brought in things that would determine a scoring opportunity. But your point's well made. If It always expands. If, if, um, if, if somebody on our club's going down and they get hooked and, they, and the scoring chance is gone, it's not called and they lose the puck, defenseman picks it up and fires at the center ice and they get a two-on-one and score, the hooking call in the offensive zone – when our player got hooked, may well have created that scoring opportunity. And the referees have decided to let it go. I think, and this is how I judge officials, is and I and I, I challenge our officials at our level, which which are which are good officials. I mean there's the our officiating is as good as the hockey that's being played. Right? So it's kind of equivalence, right, where it should be. Where I dig right into the referee's mind is when I when I go by the bench, if they call us and they just didn't call Hamilton on the same offense, I let them know that I see you. We're judging you on what you don't call, not on what you call. Everything you call is a penalty, whether it's a holding penalty in the NFL, but they compare it to, they just did that to our guy and you didn't call it. And okay. that's where the... Indes- it, it, but Don, and so you guys don't have video review, no. but in leagues where video review exists, if a toe in the crease is not there anymore, if a... Potential goalie interference should be something that is called. Why only that? That's this is my point. Of, you have once you've opened Pandora's box, stuff is now available. Technology allows it. We have been taken over by the technology rather than taming the technology to fit what we want it to be. I, I, I very simply, in my mind, one of two things should happen with instant replay in sports, and I already said it. Either you keep it. 
but you make it so that every referee gets to see the play one time on review. And if there is something that is wildly egregiously missed that somehow we didn't get, that there's 13 guys on the football field and they're supposed to be 12 up in Canada or there's whatever, if if there is something egregious, we see it right away and we can call it. And if not, and if we can't do that, then let's get rid of replay, period, and let's just let the officials officiate. And if there's a few mistakes, there's a few mistakes. We don't seem to have a, a replay when players make mistakes or when coaches make mistakes. It's well, a human game. What I always find interesting, when, when they wave a goal off because of goaltender interference, one might think that that would automatically trip a penalty. Because if you interfere with a goaltender, so you, you know why you don't see it? Is because, first of all, we're taking the goal away from the guy. How much worse does it get if you if Mitch Marner does it tonight and they say it was goaltender interference, there's no goal? Well, if it's goaltender interference, it's a two-minute minor penalty. Look, if you're well, why, the, why don't you call it right? If you're going to get it right, get it right. If he interfered with a goaltender... That's a minor penalty. Well, the other thing then is okay. So the so every sport now the standard rule is the ruling on the field or the ice or whatever is the default position, and what you see on the replay has to strenuously or whatever overturn has, has to prove the call in the field was wrong. If that's the case, if I'm the officials, I'm saying, look, the call on the field is, or on the ice is always going to be in. We're not going to call anything. We're just going to blow the whistle, and we're not going to make a call, and we'll go and just watch the replay because now you get locked into something, and again, it causes it causes controversy. It causes chaos. I, if I'm New England fans right now, even though I think those two touchdowns were both good touchdowns, based on what we've seen earlier in the year, based on what we've seen in other replays, I feel aggrieved. I feel like we were jobbed. Yeah. I don't think they were, but that's, that's going to that's carry on forever, though. I don't know. As long as they've got instant replay. And I don't think instant replay is going anywhere. Oh, no. I don't care not. how much you don't like it. I don't think it's going anywhere. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to become more and more a part of all the games. So then let's go all out. If that's the case, if we're going to do this, if we're going to make officiating a technological thing. Well, it's, but it's not, though. Because the guys, the guys in uh, the National Hockey League, because I'm more familiar with it, the replay decisions are made in New York or Toronto or Tilsonburg where Colin Campbell is, <laughs> right? But, I mean, the decision, the the the, discrep- the discretionary call is still made by somebody. If you're not sure, if you're not going to call something and you have nothing to overturn, everything you see will be discretionary. Yeah, but let's. I'm saying let's go with, let's just take it right to the nth degree then. If we want these games to be basically done perfectly, let's have two or three people in a booth upstairs watching on monitors the entire game, and if there is an infraction, they can flick a big light or blow a horn or something from up there and announce penalty. Tell me the biggest one. In baseball, they say they want everything done perfectly. They want the ball, make sure the ball didn't go foul. It stayed in fair. They did, it went over the fence, whatever else. You can't slide into second base too much now to take out the second base. Every whatever. ball and strike is a discretionary. Every ball and strike. So of all the things that you're not willing to go with the video, it's the one where all the mistakes are made. Yeah. So if you truly want to have a perfectly officiated game, the one thing you can't have is a human home plate umpire. You've got to go with a computerized strike zone. That'll, I, I don't know if that'll ever happen. I don't want to see it happen, but I suppose we either have to go one extreme or the other eventually. We may see it in our lifetime. 
if the technology gets better. But we've all, in in the old days, the refereeing has changed a lot in the National Hockey League. But, you know, Bobby Myers come in to do a game. The coaches will say, all right, Myers is in here. We know what we can do and what we can't do. That was a great standard in my mind. It's the same as if you listen to Jerry Howarth or Buck Martinez with the Blue Jays and the umpires. And it, and it magnifies itself in the playoffs, of course. But you'll hear these guys after about the first inning. Well, you know what? Radley's notorious. We all know his strike zone is the lowest in the league, or he's going to call things below the shin. And strike zone is supposed to be a strike zone. Yeah, it's supposed to be from the top of the knee to underneath the armpits. But umpires get known for their strike zone. And that's what has to be expected tonight. And you know, there's a pitcher out there that if he's got a great sinker, and you got a low, low, uh, an umpire that calls stuff low, he's got an he's got an advantage. I still though would prefer to just have the umpires out there and live with it because even when you watch those strike zones now that you see on TV, more often than not they're correct. More, I mean, of all the pitches they're going to see. They get it right more often than not. I'm frankly always amazed at how many times when you watch a baseball game over the course of a, over the summer, you watch all these games, how many times you see the ball land right on the edge of the box, right on the line, and they call it correctly. And I'm like, you know what? Yeah, they miss a few. They do. They miss a few. There's no question about that. Yeah, but... Not, but I would rather my sports to be a human endeavor as, than a computer game. As often as you see that, you'll see the, you'll see the overhead... And the umpire's consistently calling strikes that are two inches outside the plate. Now, the players adjust, the pitchers adjust, and so on. But should they have to? The guy that should be doing this, and I, 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 would, I don't know if you spoke to him about your article tomorrow, was my golf partner, Ron Foxcroft. I mean, he's got as much experience. I mean, he's in he the He was NBA. on here on Friday. No, he was on here on Friday. Look, I, 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 would, I didn't talk to Ron about this. It was, uh, it, but I would argue that even Ron not even Ron, that Ron would argue, let the officials officiate. The officials are trained to do their job. I don't understand why we are paying people, which comes out of the cost of tickets and everything else, why we are paying people to do a job that we then want to immediately turn around and say, yeah, but it doesn't really count. What you're doing isn't really counting because we'll, we'll if there's anything close, we're just going to go to video review, slow the game down for five minutes, come up with some decision that no one can contemplate or understand. We can't grasp what the heck just happened because last week the exact same play was given a different ending. Let the officials, you know, I don't know something got to go to break. Ron Foxcroft, I think he said he did 35 years. I think on Friday he said he did 35 years of officiating. I would bet you that if Ron was here, he would acknowledge that once or twice he blew a call. I don't think so. Once or twice. But by and large, of all the calls that he made and that his son Dave makes in the CFL, of all the calls, 99% of them are correct. More than 99%. I can live with that other point something percent, the odd one that gets missed. And as I go, here's the other one. Yesterday, the last play of the game, the Hail Mary. There were five Philadelphia Eagles around Rob Gronkowski, if you look at the picture afterwards. Somebody interfered with him. If this was the CFL, there would have been a coach's flag thrown on challenging pass interference, and probably the Patriots have the ball first and goal at the one-yard line with no time left, with one play left to go to tie the game. Was there pass interference? 
I don't know. Was there enough pass interference that it prevented him from being able to make a play on the ball? I don't know. But you want to slow that down and watch it frame by frame. Oh, you sure. will see somebody make contact with Bumping him. Bumping him, for sure. I don't need that as part of my game. Let the refs call the game and they and, can do the job. And they didn't make a they call. They didn't make a call. But I'm saying if this had gone to somebody replay. Him. He's the size of a 747. He is. The Scott Radley Show. The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.